Paul, we are recording this at the end of March, which is Women's History Month. So it's a perfect time for us to take a pulse on one of our core purposes for existing at the modern white man. The anti-sexist part of working to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. You know, I would say overall in our discussions, we tend to weigh heavier on the topic of race. As we have discussed a lot, especially recently in the context of hierarchies and a caste system, you know, race is the identifying factor in our society that places someone on that hierarchy. We've talked a lot about that. But intertwined in so much of our conversations is how, as white men, in order to be equitable, it's essential to be anti-sexist as well. And we've had two episodes so far on our journey specifically regarding our identity work to be anti-sexist men. If you'll remember episode five, the creation of gender roles, why did men make the distinction? And episode six, traditional masculinity, how does it impact men's identity? So as you take a pulse on where you're at, listening back to those may be helpful because remember, the, this personal identity work will help us confidently go forward as anti-sexists. I don't know if you knew that we're doing identity work, Paul. Have I mentioned that? Have we oh, mentioned that, that before? Oh, that's what we've been doing That's what we've been doing for 22 straight episodes. I'm, I'm just getting caught up to speed on that's that. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so identity work's important. That's, hey. a ta- that's the takeaway. <laughs> Have you heard of the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? No, by any who's chance? that by? <laughs> <laughs> Beverly Daniel Tatum. I don't oh, know if we've ever mentioned that author. I don't think author. I've ever quoted that no, book no. or that author, but I'll look into it. You know, and it's funny. We were like, oh, let's have a mini-sode on this checking in on being anti-sexist. I, I just, I'm looking at we got what we got going on here and what we want to say. I'm... I'm just not so sure this is going to be a mini-sode. I don't know. I, we might just have to call it a, what were you saying, a mi- midi-sode? Midi, okay. Midi-sode, but it probably will end up being more of a, a maxi-sode. Like, like a sode. Like a full-on sode <laughs> that's close to, you know. What is the cutoff? Like 45 minutes or more would be like a maxi-sode? Midi-sode oh, is like 30 minutes? Yeah, I think so. Mini-sode is like 20 minutes or less. Yes, I think that's right. Our first mini-sode is 10 minutes. I feel like that's yeah. like the definition of a yeah. mini-sode, which we'll probably never accomplish no, ever no. again. No, and I even like thinking back, I'm like, God, man, there's so much more that I wanted to say. I know. I like, uh, yeah, no, no doubt. When I was editing that, I'm like, oh, man, no, keep it to the yep, mini-sode. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I've really enjoyed seeing a lot from influential women this month on their inspiring stories and their perspectives on what still needs to be done to achieve gender equity. And that's really what has inspired us to do this intentional check-in. You know, we're always saying how important it is to revisit information and check in and and also to make goals for ourselves, right? So like as we're checking our pulse, it's like, what do we want to do? Like what are some tangible things? But before we get into that, what Paul and I will both share kind of where we're at right now, what we want to work on, let's define anti-sexist, shall we? We really love grounding ourselves in definitions, as Ibram X. Kendi always says. But I do think is really interesting about our, our journey so far, Paul, is we've defined anti-racist, we've defined gender, sex, we've defined gender identity, we've talked about the spectrum, we've had a lot of different definitions. We actually have never defined anti-sexist mm. before, which is a good thing for us to finally do since it's in our like yeah, purpose. It's like foundational it's our intro, to what right? we do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. pulling from Dr. Kendi's definition of anti-racist, that's how we get to our definition of anti-sexist. So an anti-sexist is one who is supporting an anti-sexist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-sexist idea. And through their actions is essential. It's not being passively not sexist. If you'll remember that anti, that's that really important part about this definition is that we're actively doing things to be equitable. Being anti-sexist is actively doing the work to ensure policies in the workplace and community are producing or sustaining gender equity between gender identities and its understanding that gender identities are equal in all their apparent differences, that there is nothing right or wrong about any gender. 
So again, we have those two parts of this definition. It's the policy part, which can feel like really big and heavy, right? And it can be, but there are many things that we can do and we'll talk about like different policies we can address on an individual level, but it's also individual ideas, right? And it can be the equally important everyday, every moment actions, right? We wanna be anti-sexist people, not just anti-sexist workers or leaders in the workplace, right? What are those every single everyday things that we can do to really work towards gender equity? Yeah, I agree. I like that piece because yeah, policy can feel like almost inaccessible to a lot of people. Like I don't have the power or the ability to change policies in my workplace or in my community, or I don't have that ability right now. So a lot of people hear that and be like, well, that doesn't speak to me. Right. So I like the idea even of like policies for our own lives, like as in like what governs what we do, right? What are our own personal policies, if you will? Yeah. The belief systems that we have, the way that we go about our our day-to-day life, right? That can be dictated by, if you will, policies, right? I think we'd call them maybe biases or values or something like that. But what what are those core things that have created a a culture, if you will? Like either that culture is with your family or community, but just what is that leads you and guides you and you know, I think it's it's equally important to say, you know, what are we anti, of course, with anti-sexism, and it's also great to say, what are we for, right? What 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 vision are we painting for a better future? What do we want to champion? So if we dismantle something, right? I probably said this before. If we if we do dismantle sexism, for example, or even just a policy that is a sexist policy, what replaces it, right? right. What are we for? What right. are we creating? What are we building? And that can be both, yes, at this very large, high level scale with policies and the everyday moments of life. So, yeah, well said. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I really like that. You've said that before, and that's always stuck with me. The what are we for? Mm Because it's it's almost like more, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it's, you know, it's almost (laughs) more energizing. That's better to to think that way sometimes, right? When you, when you're always thinking about what you're against, it's, it's just a little bit, which is important, mm-hmm. but it can be more draining mm-hmm. rather than when you're thinking about what am I for? It's like, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I want to get to that vision, right? And so having both is really important. Yeah, I think it's something that's lost quite a bit in activism work because there are so many things to be against and everything. And of course, all of those are legit to be against. But the real sustaining part of activism work, I think, in any form is that hope, that inspiration. And I felt this for myself. I got so lost in this despair of all these things at anti that I almost lost hope Mm. that things could change. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like made me burn out and become really, really cynical and almost like an unpleasant person to be around. Mm. So I think it's, it's good to balance that with what are we for, you know, and I I do want to say too, for policy, I, I think we should really broaden our definition of policy. Mm-hmm. I think when we think policy, we think well, like what is written in the like employee handbook, yeah. right? But a policy could be anything, whether it's written or unwritten, right? Tacit or explicit within your team, within your department, right? even within you and a colleague, like anything that is sort of this is what we do. It's sort of like, like a norm, right? This yeah. is what we do here whether or not it's actually codified, right? So I think broadening our our definition of policy, I think makes it a little bit more accessible for listeners and all of us to be like, hey, I do have some power and ability to change policies. I might not be able to change this sexist policy in the employee handbook right now with where I'm at, but I can change this sexist practice or the way we do things, whatever it might be, in my department or right. in my team. Yeah. Or just, again, in my day-to-day interaction. So I think broadening that helps us feel like we can make a change right away. While we might be working long-term on that employee handbook policy, that's a that's going to take some time, yeah. right? Yeah. To, to move through all the red tape or talk to the right people and have it go through the board or the leadership team. That might take more time. But there's things we could do right now. Yeah. That's such a good point and so important. It's a lot of times when I think of policy, my mind automatically goes to like City Hall or mm, to mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. Right. Or, you know, or like I have a lot of my Peace Corps friends got into policy, uh, went to grad school to, to be public policy makers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, that sounds like the... That sounds about right. Yep. I think one went to Columbia and yeah. he got it. It was policy maker. Policy, policy maker. Yeah, maker. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, like I think I kind of go to those my friends sometimes where I'm always like, man, I mm-hmm. I can't you know they're working you know one was working at the Philadelphia Attorney General's office like trying to get policy through. And it's like, if you think about it, that it's like, wow, I can do nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But to change your focus on on that mm-hmm. and how you know these little things can lead to bigger things down the road. But policies, I even like how you said it could be between colleagues, you and a colleague, yep. like have have an agreement that could be your own personal policy. Exactly. That that's a great great point. Maybe I'll write a blog post on that. We should, I should say, we should write a blog post yeah, on that. I think that's great. And our New Year's resolution of writing more blog posts. I yeah, think that's that going to be really mid-March. Good. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing mini blogs. Hey, it's sometimes it's baby steps <laughs> yeah, to get to the bigger true. picture. Yeah, mini yeah. blogs. Mini blogs. Oh, man. So many like branding one possibilities. Par- one paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's take a pulse on our work as white men aiming to be anti-sexist. So there are some questions that you can ask yourself that can really help get the wheels turning. Is our workplace instituting anti-sexist policies that address issues like equitable recruiting and interviewing, equal gender pay, and uniform upward mobility? And putting the caveat on that is like, those all seem really big, right? So going to your point of, they could be smaller things leading to that. But those are examples of well-known issues regarding gender inequities. Are anti-sexist ideas and practices the norm in meetings, right? Individual meetings, that's much more able to be grasped. Are our communities allowing equal time and space for all gender identities to be heard and respected? How can you positively leverage your privilege to break down inequities every day that you see gender inequities? So, all right, Paul, let's check in. Where, where are you at? What kind of comes to mind with taking a pulse on your own work as being anti-sexist? What are some things you, you're working on, you want to work on? Where are you at? Yeah, so I feel like, so I landed in an organization that I felt like, I guess I, I don't believe necessarily in a higher power, like putting me in positions that will test me, but I think that's kind of what happened. Like, so I, I recently started a new position at an organization that really was... I would say 100% or 99.9% led by white men. And not not only led by white men, but like across the board was white men for maybe close to a century. And within the last, well, around probably the 1950s, 1960s, women came into the workplace for the first time ever. So it really has this historical foundation on this is a white male organization, right? It's seen tons of changes in the last, it's definitely a couple years as they've brought on a whole DEI department and they have a DEI strategy and their workforce is rapidly becoming more diverse, which is awesome, yeah. right? But my first impressions were there's, there's this foundation, this white male dominated foundation that's still very much present mm-hmm. there. In a way that was kind of culture shock, I'd say. Yeah. You know, I'm used to being a part of nonprofits that are a little bit more progressive and actually work for human rights, essentially. Mm-hmm. Not to say that there wasn't sexism or racism there. There absolutely was. But it was sort of like, wow, it was sort of a surprising for me. But it's probably a lot of organizations out there in that exact situation you're yeah. talking about where like even if numbers are showing hey, we're making some progress here on diversity. It's like that those foundations for decades and decades of the way things are done around here with mm-hmm. white men being mm-hmm. leaders, like that foundation is so hard to break apart. Yep. So that's a, that's a perfect example where I feel like a lot of companies are. Yep. Yeah. So just a couple observations, you know, my first few months there, it's really interesting. Everything from, you know, what seems to be insignificant, of course, is, is not insignificant, but sort of like small things like Lots of men refer to women as girls, mm. I've noticed. And so you're just just things like that is part of the culture. Even, you know, just, just when I'm walking down the, the hallway, I don't know if I'm reading into things, but if I'm walking down the hallway and there's another a man walking towards me, we make eye contact, say hello. When I notice women walking down the hallway, it's it's a lot of like looking away. And I and I and I'm, I don't know if I'm reading into it too much or if it's this culture of women just feel like they you know they know they're part of a male-dominated organization. I mean, it's no secret, right? I mean, I don't know if that is this sort of feeling oppressed by that culture, feeling submissive or almost you know. And so it's really kind of it's been hard for me to to see you know yeah. and just kind of like I said, culture shock. 
But one thing that I'm working on that I feel like that that is sort of, I guess you could say policy level is I, I run a leadership development program for the operations side. So, so there's, it's a manufacturing facility and you have you know, your associates, which is, you know, at the lowest level of the organization who are really on the assembly line working. And then you have the next level up, which are the crew leads. So I lead a leadership development program for any associate who wants to become a crew lead. And in my short time there, I've seen two of these programs happen. The last program was, I think they had about eight or nine individuals in the program. There were zero women. In the current program, and I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say because I was part of the recruitment and the hiring. There's one woman out wow. of 13. Wow. We had 29 applicants. Two were women. So so this was, you know, that the first program, you know, no women. That was a big red flag. I was like, there's something wrong here. And then, you know, we go through the recruitment process again and only two apply. And I'm like, there's a real issue here. You know, the, now again, the the gender breakdown still is very much more men to women, but that doesn't matter. That shouldn't matter, right? Yeah. So this next go around, you know, I'm determined to figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. right? Like, what are the systemic barriers here? What's causing women to feel like they can't apply? They can't raise their hand? What is happening here? So I'm actually, I put together a meeting with a group of female operation leaders. We have a, we have a few in, in you know, supervisor, manager positions mm-hmm. in the operations and Basically, you're going to sit down and be like, what can we do here? There's a problem here. And, you know, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Why do you think women aren't applying, right? And and I, kept, I have to catch myself, too, of like, there's there's something systemic happening here. This yeah. isn't like individual, like, why aren't they raising their hand, right? And, of course, there's individual, of course, they can raise their hand and apply. But there's definitely something that is probably not a policy. I'm sure there's no policy saying, well, I know there's no policy saying no. Women can't apply for this right. program, right? That'd so, be illegal to, yeah. so yeah, <laughs> right. So clearly, there's one of these like unwritten policies, cultural norm, misperception that's really holding women back. So, so that's why I'm really curious to find out what's going on there. Yeah, that's so great. You know, what I really think is important with that example is it reminds me of a lot of companies that I used to work with on their DEI efforts, and it was always a pipeline problem. Yeah. It was always, I wish mm-hmm. we could, we just don't get the applicants, mm-hmm. right? Like we would right. love to diversify or we'd mm-hmm. love to have more women leaders. It's just, it's a pipeline problem. We don't have the applicants. Mm-hmm. And for you to stop and say, something's going on, like what's going on here, right? Like yeah. I want to find out because there must be something systemic is such a productive way to think about it and look at it because it's it can seem like a daunting task where i feel like for you and your role it's like kind of what you're supposed to be doing right you're hired to to really work on this the equitable training processes right Right. for you to get a group of women together to kind of ask questions and figure that out would make sense for someone else not in that direct position let's say you're you know, in marketing mm-hmm. and you notice it and you hear colleagues or a boss saying, man, I sure wish that we ever got more women or mm-hmm. black indigenous people of color, BIPOC folks to apply. Well, they just don't. Right. So mm-hmm. we always end up with white men. It's not our fault. Mm-hmm. Like what are things that they can do if we have a white man listening to this more in that yeah. position? What are little things they can do to kind of help see what that culture might be? Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's speaking up. It's going to who is doing the interviewing, who's doing the recruitment, and, of course, going to ask questions, right? You know, we depends on the person, but someone like me might want to just charge in and say, like, here's the problem, here's what you're doing wrong, you need to fix it now. Like, right. that's just going to shut down everyone. So asking questions and, and what what are you doing, what are you not doing, how can I help, you know? you kind of That's where you kind of, like, men kind of be need to be... I th- that's kind of a form of leadership and you know like someone's got to step in mm-hmm. right it, we can't sit around and hope that these folks in leadership roles or those doing the interviewing or whatever we can't just hope they figure it out we really need to to step in right and insert ourselves which i know as white men we're we're also being considerate of like we do that too much yeah. right yeah. so this is that balance of when is it appropriate as white men to step in insert ourselves well, that's leveraging that privilege exactly for good, right? Like right. if you can leverage the privilege to break down that privilege, which is what white men have the power to do, that's a that's a good thing. Right, yeah, because I think we've said it before, like 
it's an unfortunate reality that as white men, people will listen to us more. People will believe us more. People will, you know, maybe change their minds or, or be willing to, to try something different Yeah, because we're the ones speaking. And, and it's another identity, too, yeah. where if it's a bunch of white men getting hired or it's a bunch of men getting hired... If you have women going up to HR and being like, hey, what's going on here? Might be like, oh, okay, like, you know, this is just in that person's head, like all these things, you know, or they're not happy because they didn't get the promotion. Like it's it's mm-hmm. easy to turn it into like an individual thing. But for a white man to be like, hey, you're hiring a lot of white men like me. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this mm-hmm. just like, yeah, we, we know that through studies and all that, that white men are listened to more in general. But mm-hmm. just even having that, it almost is like a take back where you're like, hey, I'm white. I'm a white man. I think the system is benefiting me mm-hmm. too much, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's like a shift. I always like doing that kind of stuff, how I like leveraging my my privilege. I know a lot of people probably aren't quite there yet to be ready to do that. And that's okay. But even just asking those simple questions, mm-hmm. like you said, I think is can be yeah. really good. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe, yeah, someone isn't going to explicitly shut down a woman if they came forward. But the fact that women aren't believed as much is a is a is a fact. Like right. it's it's a it's an unconscious bias that we hold at some level. I'll say, you know, for, yeah. for men or white men or really kind of people in general. Right. They just historically haven't been believed. There's that unconscious bias that we all hold that or like the whole the, the history of like women being hysterical or overly emotional right. or overly sensitive. Now we're getting into the really the everyday action actions of how we can be anti-sexist of catching ourselves and I, I do it too of catching myself of when am I perceiving a woman uh, as being overly emotional mm-hmm. and overly sensitive and really catching myself because those things are really embedded in our belief system that's yeah. been you know created by by patriarchy and so um, yeah, I think it is it is uh, disarming for a white man to come in and because because they're like, what's in it for this guy? Like, right. it, 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 you know, it's not there's nothing in it for him. So there must really be an issue here. Hopefully that's how they think. Yeah, it's it's at the end of the day, it's, it's a I don't know if I have the greatest advice other than find the right people to talk to. Find the people who have that power and that position to make changes. Yeah, I think that those questions is so important. And what I always think of is HR. That's a great place to start with just asking questions because at least Mm -hmm. in my experiences, they are always thinking about hiring and and all this stuff. So if you're not so sure how to address with your boss or your boss's Mm -hmm. boss, because I know that can be intimidating, you know, hopefully with your supervisor, you're able to build a rapport where you can have these questions. But systemically, at least, I think chipping away at HR Mm-hmm. is is a good way to to start those conversations yep. and you might run into people in hr or really anywhere that like be like yeah i've been thinking about this too mm-hmm. but i thought i was the only one mm-hmm. right but now that you have this ally you can get some real momentum yeah. right now okay yeah let's let's work on this together mm-hmm. i found that sometimes too people just feel like isolated and so they don't really do much but once you build some like a team and get other people then you're like all right let's work on this together yep. right so so even just asking questions might even help you find that ally, yes. which I think is really important to do this work. It's yeah. just not work that can be done individually. So I want to talk about this this really interesting... Have you heard of the Pygmalion effect? No. I came across this. It's really interesting. And actually, it's based on... The name comes from a Greek myth. Hmm. This sculptor named Pygmalius. Hence, Pygmalion. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny, but... Um, oh, I love it. All right, let's go. Pygmalius, P-Y-G-M-A-L-I-U-S. Pygmalius. So he was a Greek sculptor who was sculpting a sculpture of a woman. And as he was sculpting it, he thought the sculpture was beautiful, so he fell in love with the sculpture. Mm. And because he fell so much in love with the sculpture, the gods actually brought the sculpture to life, and he married... The, the woman that he sculpted. Wow. So basically... That's a, that's a happy ending. It is a happy Typically ending. those mythology tales yeah. end in horror. And then Thor struck him. Like, yeah. And then know? they were like, because he fell in love with his own work, they wanted to teach him a lesson. Oh, yeah. And Good point. Stu- like what I was immediately oh, yeah. thinking of... Uh, who's the guy that fell in love with his own reflection? Oh. Uh, Reflectious? Uh, <laughs> yes. That was it. <laughs> uh, uh, it starts with an A. Adonis. 
Adonis. Isn't it Adonis who fell in love with his reflection and one day he was looking mm. in the pond at himself and he drowned? Oh. That's the ending I thought you were going for. Like he would turn anyway, into stone had... because he... No, he... Yes. Yeah, like Pygmalion's yes, turn They're like, yeah, oh, yeah. you love it, Pygmalion's? Yeah. Now you're a stone forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's where... That was 100% where your I... your stone wife That's to go with you. 100% whatever I thought you were going with that. Okay. No, so... <laughs> so this Pygmalion's effect is essentially... The, the, the moral is... Sometimes your expectations can become reality, which is really, really interesting. Mm. So it was later studied. It's this idea that our beliefs about something, about others specifically, influence our actions towards others, which then cause their actions towards us to reinforce our beliefs. Mm -hmm. So here's a really interesting thing. And we brought this up in in the leadership development program. It was really interesting because I kept hearing this belief, which is a a bias. So so what we're talking about here with with sexism is biases, right? So one of these biases that's really pervasive in the workplace where I'm at is that women are less physically capable or really kind of in general less capable of doing the nature of the work it was just really interesting. So you start with that belief, right? Women are less capable, right? We could just kind of simplify it. Women are less capable. That's the belief. Influences our actions towards others. So we, for example, might not give opportunities for women to do certain tasks or jobs because we think they're less capable of doing those tasks or jobs. Hmm. So leaders, right? People in like the crew leads or the lead teams would say, I'm not going to put this woman in this position or this job or do this task because I think my belief is that they're less capable. So it influences our actions, which then impacts their beliefs about themselves, right? They think, well, if since nobody assigns me this task, I must not be capable, right? Yep. And then that action towards us, then they don't even volunteer for this stuff, right? Or they are, and then, and you know they might protest or something like that because there's there's not that confidence, mm-hmm. right, that they can do the job. So then this you know not volunteering to do certain things or lack of confidence reinforces our belief that women aren't capable. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So our expectations, which is based on a bias, which is not true influences others actions and beliefs about themselves which is then so it's yeah if you look at the diagram it's a circle it's a it's a reinforcing circle so very simply right it's easy to break that cycle by just changing our belief Mm -hmm. right the belief that anyone could be capable of doing this task or this job Mm -hmm. right regardless of their identity Mm -hmm. so giving everyone opportunities to do something you know the other the other thing too that that the reason why we're seeing so few women in leadership positions is this belief bias that women are too emotional to lead we've heard that a million times right Mm -hmm. that's a long-standing belief and you know you go through the circle right so again you know you have white men in leadership positions saying hey you know well we've done everything we can you know and there are no barriers anymore for women to apply for leadership roles so it's their fault that they're not stepping up you know when in fact through unconscious bias there's men you know have reinforced this belief that women are too emotional to lead and so they're less likely to for example coach or mentor or develop women who are you know quote unquote below them or even in interviews unconsciously justify like you know you might think they don't have the credentials or you know they, they weren't strong enough in the interview or they didn't seem to want it enough when the belief is really oh they're too emotional yeah. they're too they're yeah, right so right yeah, like so that. it was really fascinating to, and like kind of a, you know, mind blowing thing of like, wow, you know, so how we might feel like we operate in a vacuum with some of these biases, but it in fact just creates this, re, you know, self perpetuating cycle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that we can bring an awareness to, to check our own biases always right. is, is, that's a really helpful thing to check. I like it. Yeah. What's, yeah. What's something else you're working on? I have a good, you know, I've had a couple things. I'll go over the first one quick because it's kind of straightforward. It's something I've really like practiced over and over again has become my norm in meetings, for example, is just mm. ensuring or asking myself, am I talking too much mm-hmm. or just talking for the sake of being heard? Mm-hmm. And then the second one is, has everyone had the opportunity to speak? You know, mm. everyone, even white, shy white men, for example, mm. right? But like typically attuned to non-white right. men. Have, has everyone really had the opportunity to? If not, I'll be like, hey, has everyone had the chance to speak? 
take wait and give a good amount of time right not just mm-hmm. for like a second or even talk to a team be like hey how do we want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to say like at the end mm-hmm. uh, go around like you know you don't want to call out people but just yeah. try to make sure but the mm-hmm. the one thing that i wanted to say with that that i think is important is this is not telling white men to not speak up. There's mm-hmm. a difference there, mm-hmm. right? So I was having the conversation with a white man on this once, and he told me, hey, if I have something to say in a meeting, I'm going to say it. Mm-hmm. Well, good. You should. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like this is, you know, it's that either or, dangerous either or mentality. It's like, all right, well, either I'm speaking or they're speaking. No, you know, it's better for every, you know, you sharing your ideas is good for the group and the company. Mm-hmm. It's just ensuring that everyone has had the opportunity to do so. You're not overtaking conversations because as we've talked ad nauseum about throughout our process, you know, we've been conditioned to really do that, to, to jump in and say and not, you know, I'll throw out as many ideas as I can and then you know half hour meetings gone and nobody else got a chance to mm-hmm. say anything mm-hmm. so that's like an easy thing everybody can just kind of work on right yeah, yeah I like that a lot and I've, I've thought about that a lot too and even just those moments when you do kind of do your due diligence if you will to stop and ask for feedback a lot of times you no one says anything yep and so that can be dangerous too because that might be like okay well nobody's got anything to say so I'm just gonna keep talking so I always have to check that assumption right There might be lots of people who have something to say, Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, they're not feeling comfortable in that moment in time, or there still is a cultural norm present or a quote unquote policy, right? In meetings, Mm -hmm. you know, that certain people don't speak up. So what I just caution people is if you do it once, right? And nobody speaks up, you're like, all right, well that didn't work. So I'm just gonna go back to what we're doing before. Mm It, it can take a long time and you might even change the way you get feedback. Yeah. Maybe that's you pass out a post-it note to everyone and they write down what their, their idea or their thought is, or you send an email afterwards and, or meet one-on-one with people. Right. So mm-hmm. it can be easy for us to do that once and not, nobody says anything. And then we just say, all right, well that didn't work. And I'll just go back to talking again, I guess. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. It's yeah. such a great point. It's like, yeah. I think the best way that I think to do that is when I think of the teams I've had is to create that goal together. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just, and you didn't have to be the team leader even. You can ask your supervisor or or whatever. And especially like a lot of people are working remote. It's even harder Mm -hmm. over a Zoom call than in Mm -hmm. an in-person meeting. Be like, hey, what do we think about setting up some kind of agreed to process where at the end of every meeting, we all, is it pass out post-it notes? Is mm-hmm. it this or right. that? You know, even if you had a say, maybe you'll have an extra thought at the end where everyone can get input on that and then share. And then everybody feels like, yeah, let's do that at yeah. the end of meetings. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Like, make sure that people are on board with that. Cause yeah, calling out people is something that I think I wanted to do, but like, it's not great to do either. Hey, yeah. Paul, what do you think? You know, mm-hmm. you're like, oh man, either you didn't want to say anything or now people know that you're not going to say anything or mm-hmm. you were daydreaming and, you know, you got frustrated at one point in the meeting, so stop listening. Right. Like, right. you know, there's a lot of danger in that. Right. So like finding right. a safe way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to just bring up that this was something I actually saw on LinkedIn just today. Someone posted a tweet that I'll just, I'll just read kind of verbatim here said, I don't know if that made sense, is in quotations, and it says, a smart woman who just made perfect sense. Mm. And then the next quotation, if you're sure it's not too much trouble, a fair woman who just made a fair request. And then, sorry if this is a stupid question, a brilliant woman asking an important and perfectly valid question. So it was just really, really interesting. And, you know, something I see, I think I would say a lot of women do and been something that has really been created through sexism and patriarchy of making women feel underappreciated, undervalued, less capable, like less intelligent, right? So a lot of times they use these qualifying statements. So it was a really interesting and also disheartening discussions and comments that I saw beneath it. Lots of mansplaining, let me tell you. So lot of men saying well they can just stop saying that anytime like it's ever you know their personal choice like men didn't make them say these things right and i just thought that was like this gaslighting right mm-hmm. so it made me think of an immediate thought was like telling black folks who live in formerly red line neighborhoods that's their own fault yeah for being in that neighborhood and being poor and they can just get up and move at any time Yep. Right. That is when we first talked about gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Way long ago. And like yep. that was episode four, maybe. Yeah. 
So this is why it's so important to understand these, the historical context of why women make these qualifying statements. Because it's so easy in our individualistic society to say, they don't need to say that, right? They don't need to feel undervalued. I'm not making them feel undervalued, right? And there were so many men who'd be like, well, I don't do that, or I don't think they're stupid or anything like that. It's like, okay, but you're missing the point. This belief about themselves, right, back to the Pygmalion effect, has come from this belief from a dominant culture that women are less than, right? And it's created this, this belief about themselves, right? So, so we as men need to own the fact that we just as white people are, are collectively responsible for racism, men are collectively responsible for really the harm that patriarchy has done and created and be mindful of these things. And it was a really interesting discussion. I don't necessarily have a, a like right thing to do. Like, do you tell if a woman says that, do you say like, you don't need to say that hmm. yeah, or right. cause, cause that could be condescending, right? Like, yeah. um, yeah, yeah. you know, so I don't, I don't know if I have any thoughts on that, but just, it maybe it depends on the relationship, you know, but I just thought it was really interesting and, and yeah. something to be mindful of is we might hear that pretty often. It's a great example. So, cause yeah, I never find myself saying, well, so, and this was interesting too. This is where another gender bias came into play. If men, and I actually kind of did some research on this phenomenon. If men say something like, sorry, if this is a stupid question, it's seen as like humble and vulnerable and like almost like it, it raises their value as a human being. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas when women do it, it's like they're, they're belittling themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I use it and sometimes I do, it's like, oh, look at, you know, oh, he's so humble. Like, yeah. Oh, He's, you know, he, he really is checking his ego. What a right. great leader, yeah. right? Whereas, you know, women say it, it's almost like maybe even no one gives a second thought. Like that seems to quote unquote make sense right. that they would qualify. Yeah, there are a lot of double you know, standards like that right, for right. men and women in, in the workplace specifically, but in life. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Because I think I do it too because I always want to show or I always want to be vulnerable and show like I can right. very much be wrong here where almost I've trained myself over the years to be more vulnerable, to mm -hmm. almost break down. It's like the opposite. Like where I was always like very confident when I was a young coming out of college, you know, this is my question. This is my belief that, you know, and now mm -hmm. it's, I've like almost worked the reverse of being like, no, here's just my humble opinion mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Right. But yeah. Right. Know. It's or, interesting. Or like even I'm sure you, I know I say like, I, I know I'm speaking too much, but, but, and then I just, go on you know like even those qualifying statements benefit men as like gains more respect right yeah yeah i don't again just with like anything else it's it's you know we might say the wrong thing or even as i think about the anti-racist work that i'm doing i struggle with that just like i'm trying to create opportunities for women but that kind of feels like a savior like i'm doing it for women right so I always struggle with that, and I, I just don't think there's a right or wrong, you yeah. know, because it's a, always a both and, right? Yes, we need to leverage our power and privilege to create opportunities, and at the same time, yeah, that might be seen as condescending, and some women might be like, I don't need your help, yeah, right? right? I don't want your help. Like, yeah. So it's, again, just kind of part of the messiness, mm -hmm. and if we do get some pushback, just be willing to listen and learn and be humble, right? Yeah. Maybe one last thing that I I am working on, looking deeper into employment demographics and percentages. So what I mean by that is a lot of companies are making a ton of progress on overall women percentages. So you might see companies saying, we are a majority women organization with 52% or even 60% women employees. And that's really good, right? But if you look deeper... Where are the decision-making roles happening? And maybe those roles are still very heavily male. And while in reality, the women employees make up the majority of support roles and, and have a more difficult time moving up, right? Even companies that have a woman CEO, you know, I ask myself, what are the other levels of decision-makers? You could have a woman CEO, but then six of the seven of, on the next highest rung on the org chart is male. So males probably still have a higher sway overall in the company. So percentage-wise, these companies have made much greater progress with women than BIPOC folks over the past couple of decades. Companies can show that, but it doesn't always tell the whole story. And I'm conscious of that with my company and other companies kind of ask the right question and ensure companies are asking the right question to really uncover like where is the power you, you've talked about in that in the past where a friend of yours has a company where he finds really where the leaders are and where the power is coming mm -hmm. from 
And I think that per- these percentages can be really deceiving yeah. and, and how like the leadership traits that are valued at a company still really may be based in that foundation and are really allowing for men to, mm-hmm. to lead up. And I and the other point I want to pull from what I just said is in thinking about women equity and equity for black, indigenous, and people of color, it's really important here to, again, not have either or thinking. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I have experience in multiple experiences asking organizations about their employees of color numbers and their immediate go-to is, yeah, but we have 55% women with 40% women in leadership positions. Yes, both need to be addressed. And if equity work is done right, it should address both, right? It should address, that's why when we had that big old episode on dominant cultural norms and like how it's not either or, there's so many of these dominant cultural norms and it, and it can also go the other way around. So a company can say, hey, our employees of color reflect our community's racial breakdown, but it's still like crazy male dominated, mm-hmm. right? And so it's the age old tug and pull between the different groups it's like, oh, you know, we, we're putting a lot of effort here. This effort takes away from that. And in reality, it just keeps all of them down. And that's a characteristic that maintains the dominant cast. So I really am trying, this is kind of like a higher level way I think about percentages and companies and progress about companies. It's more than just percentages. What really is going on with equity? Are women able to advance? Are, there, are the leadership traits allowing for women to advance? Uh, so that's something I'm working on. Yeah. And when they advance, do they succeed? I yeah. think that's where I'd want to know do they the percentages. Stay? Yeah, and what's the, the retention? retention? Mm-hmm. Oh, jinx. Oh. One of the other six, seven, nine, ten. Can't say anything. <laughs> say anything Our until listeners you... are probably like, good. Oh, yeah. my God. Ken will take a break for a while. <laughs> Can't say anything until you buy me a Coke. Is that how it works? I think so. You got to buy me a Coke. That's right. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's usually where the number that you might ask that question. They're like, oh, I don't know. I got to go back and check the numbers, right? So yeah. it makes me think, too, of a great quote by Audre Lorde and you know probably quote her out of context too much but it just fits really well Um, she said there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not lead single issue lives Mm -hmm. so I just thought that's that's just perfect yeah yeah, it's it's easy to and we do that admittedly we say that in you know we're talking about sexism and racism but you know we I feel like we do our best to say that there's this is all inter- interconnected and intersectionality and it's much more complex than that it can create this like pitting the issues against each other right. when in reality we we don't lead single issue lives I love that yeah. like and that includes us as white men right like we we are not single issue people right like we are complex dynamic individuals just like every other human but it can be something that's easy. You know, we've talked about, I think, oppression Olympics, you know. Yeah, right. So singling out one identity and saying, well, this identity needs more help than that identity. And then it creates this infighting. And then at the end of the day, capitalism, white supremacy, just sitting back and watching yeah. watching the fight and, yeah. and sitting back with a bourbon and a cigar and right. feeling real good. Yes. So. Yeah, it's it's just important to, to see the depth and complexity of human beings because it, it also can be dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a form of white supremacy too to dehumanize, to, to simplify someone down to one identity, mm-hmm. right? Or even just to see that their identity but not them as a human being, yeah. I think is something we've got to be careful of too. Maybe it's even then looking into your company. How do you, you know, hopefully companies are being accountable publicly with numbers and whatever, but like mm-hmm. what are the percentages or what numbers are you showing? And is that a very performative, not actually making progress kind of metrics? And can there be better metrics that Mm -hmm. like really show different identities, belonging, making impacts, being leaders, retention, all sorts of, you know, this seems like, I'm sure there are a lot of companies out there that are doing some really good work around that Mm -hmm. of like really finding ways to to track how employees are being valued. But Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, We talk about how we'll make mistakes and get called out and it's horrible and it gets better. I'll give you all an example of when I got called out once. It's very relevant to this. And yeah, it was horrible. And then like, you know, you move on. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that they called me out. Yeah, right. right. So we were in a meeting and I got uh, at my nonprofit job and I was doing DEI trainings and consulting with companies. I heard all the time we focus on diversity of thought 
Mm. And, you know, so that includes women, it includes geography, it includes all these things. And like in retrospect, I was very unprepared. We as an organization were very unprepared how to answer that question uh, and, mm. and, and like what we were focused on really. And I wish I would have done this podcast before those questions with dominant cultural norms. It's just been really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. But it was always a way to kind of put racial equity on the side burner and say, we think of diversity of thought when in reality, it's still very similar identities, right? But somebody grew up in an hour outside of the Twin Cities, so therefore we've got some diversity going on, which is fine, right? Like, sure, but like that, that doesn't replace one or the other. But anyway, I was in this meeting and I was, it was like literally me and a bunch of women, okay? Maybe three women. So it was one of my team members, a uh, consultant who was awesome and another uh, consultant. And we were all really close at this point and we were kind of talking about this question and it was like, it was like, how do we differentiate the different types of equity that we're working on? We're really focusing on racial equity. And I was like, you know, yeah, there, there are ways that you can get diversity of thought and women and all these things, but like racial equity is a real issue. <laughs> I like, said something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And my team member thankfully called me on it. And she's like, yeah, Ken, you know, when you say like real issue, it makes me feel like you're saying women equity is not a real issue. And I was like, oh, man, I was like, thank you for telling me. Yeah, you know, you're totally right. But when when that actually happens, you know, you're like dead inside. And I was like, oh, my God. And like my immediate like defensiveness flares went up and I was like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. But I didn't say anything. I just sat there. I said, thank you, because I've been practicing. Mm-hmm. We we're working on that, right? And, uh, you know, went home and was like, oh, that's that was the worst, <laughs> right? And then had time to think on it. And days later, I'm like, oh, my gosh. like it, This always happens, y'all. So, like, it always gets better after a few days. And then you're yep. grateful. Yep. And I was like, thank you so much. I, like, went up to her. I was like, oh, man, thank you for t- – you're totally right. And I was able to, like, talk to the other women. I was like – uh, you know, man, I really, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean to. But that was just an experience I have. One of the ones where I've been called out, like mistakes that you will make if you will do this work. You'll say, you'll stay, say things in meetings that you don't mean. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, people call you on it instead of harboring it. And then, like, that's how you grow. Yep. But that was one for me. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's that's that clean pain that, you know, we've, I think we talked about in a past episode of Resma Menachem and his work of, of course, for him, it's it's racism. But I think that clean pain can, that idea of going through something that sucks, but we know that it is good for us. Right. right? So that's a great example of how you come out better on the other side. Yeah. Even though in the middle of it, you're like. I this is the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's that warm wash of shame we oh, talk about. It is with warm. It from, you go from like yeah. you could be wearing a sweater <laughs> and ten below. You get called out like that. You're like, you're like, I need to take this sweater off. Oh man. Yeah, no doubt. You yeah, know? and like intention versus impact, right? Yep. Intent versus impact. We talked about that. like yep. my intent was like obviously like no yep. racial equity is a real issue at this organization. Like it's a big time issue for you. But yep. like the way that you say it it doesn't matter what you intended they might even know what you intended but the impact is real it's their truth and then like you know you have time to sit on you're like yeah totally Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, and again like you said just great that someone called you out totally because it could very well be possible you never would have considered you know thought about what you said maybe you would have and that'd be great but yeah i can't imagine no yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine how many things I say throughout the day that I'm not even aware yeah. of the impact it, it made on people. And, yeah. you know, now we're talking about everyone, but you know, obviously with this episode we're talking about women, I mean, there's there's got to be so many things. Yeah, there's got to be so many subtle ways of how I'm just thinking like if I'm in a meeting, you know, with a bunch of people and how I probably tend to only look at and I've I've caught myself being aware of this, but like. I tend to only look more look at the men and the women when I'm talking or I probably interrupt women more than I do men. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure I do this yeah. stuff. Oh man. You know? I was <laughs> like, this is a classic example of buying a vehicle and my wife meeting up with me to help. Cause my wife is the brains of this operation. Okay. Of my family. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's the, she is so smart, especially when it comes to math and numbers. And like, so mm-hmm, I'm at mm-hmm. this dealership and my wife is there. Kelsey, Kelsey is there to ask the questions and make sure I'm not just getting 
totally like a blanket thrown over my face and like just <laughs> guys laughing as I drive away. Yeah. At this like that's like she's there to ask the right tough questions. Every question she asked, he turned to me and answered mm-hmm. every time. And I was like, I was like, I was so lost in this conversation <laughs> that I wasn't even like, I shouldn't have even been an option to look at like in, in any sense of the word. And I'm like slunked in the chair and eventually I called him on it. Yeah. I, I just went talk to her like i was like stop looking at me mm-hmm. i just pointed at her and mm-hmm. i was like she's the brains of this operation I, stop looking at me yeah wow and he's like oh yeah and, and you know and i'm like god like what is kelsey th- mm-hmm. like how many women have experiences like that where it's like yep. they turn to the man and talking and then you know they're just they just take that and then they answer it and yep. it's just like I was like so peeved at this guy. Yeah. But after I just straight called him on it hard, yeah. he was like, I think he like hyper aware. Yeah. So he came around. I was about to be like, dude, I'm going to leave this office yeah. because you're t- like, you're disrespecting Kelsey big yeah. time. But um, yeah, anyway. Well, Paul, this is such an important topic. I've, I think both of us even have more to say and more we want to go down. So good thing we can just come out with more episodes. Yeah. Right, I mean... The good thing we have a podcast. <laughs> good thing we're a white man and we have no problem with talking. Yeah, no, man. That's um, always been something I've never had yeah, a problem with. Yeah, um, but, yeah. But yeah. really, like, this is... We could go on and on. I'm glad that we're having... It's This has been good. I'm glad that we're having this conversation and we're definitely going to have some more. I think there's more nuggets that have both of our wheels turned that we mm-hmm. probably want to... Yeah, and of course, you know, it's Women's History Month, but that doesn't mean we only talk about this, you know. But I think it was important what you called out at the beginning. I was going to say the same thing. We do tend to kind of lean more towards racism. So I think it is important to be mindful of that. And, of course, our intention isn't that it's less of an issue or less important. So I think it's it's a good call out. And I yeah. think we should even talk about intersectionality, right? And it's maybe, as I mentioned earlier, like there's no such thing as a single issue, right? So maybe we should get more into to intersectionality and combine the two, you know? But yeah, I think I'm excited to kind of check in on how we're doing and hold each other accountable on, yeah. on the work we're doing in the organization. So we'll yeah. have updates for that in the future, future episodes. All right. Thanks, everybody. As always, if you're liking this, can you give us five stars, please? That'd be, that'd be great. Be so, so thankful. Check out our website, themodernwhiteman.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Please reach out. You know, if there's topics you want to hear us more on or, or any feedback, we just love hearing from y'all. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Stay humble. Keep learning. And do, do the work. work. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs>